You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. I have Tony Cowan, Director of Emergency Response Technology at Clinics on Wheels. The website is clinicsonwheels.com. So, Tony, thank you for coming. Thank you. Yeah, what's the premise of the company? What do you guys do? So, um, I came in as the Director of Emergency Response Technologies for um, our parent company, World Housing Solutions. Um, and the, the job description director of emergency response technologies probably isn't, uh, well known. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a piece that I play that I have the responsibility of sort of, uh, having a really good imagination of a really, of really bad things happening and how medically you could deploy resources and assets so that you can effectively respond, respond to whatever that scenario would be. So Clinics on Wheels was was a division that got started out of a need uh, to deploy truly um, mobile solutions to the most austere environment that you could imagine. Uh, no heavy lift equipment to get us there. Um, no power once we arrived. But we needed to be able to deploy equivalent of care environments um, to this area. And it was it was after the hurricanes devastated Puerto Rico. And it was on a small um, island uh, called Vieques. And so the whole, the whole genesis of Clinics on Wheels started out of being able to deploy um, general exam capability, um, OBGYN with pediatric care and dental surgery capability in this austere environment that had its own redundant power water. It was ADA compliant, past life safety, basically everything you would need to be able to deploy um, quality clinical care uh, that was self-reliant and didn't need the grid to run. So what are some examples of that? What kind of care? So um, full dentistry and surgical cap- dental surgical capabilities with x-ray. Um, the uh, general exam trailer has a mobile x-ray unit in it and telemedicine capability so that um, when the clinics were set up, they could actually do um, uh, referrals with uh, Centro Medico in San Juan um, on the main island. Um, so we were we were able to deploy assets that that truly gave the people on the island of Vieques the capability of getting quality care 
um, even though it's on a mobile platform. Okay, what, what would what would have been the traditional response? How would you you'd have to get the people, I guess, to the care centers off the island, which could well, be impossible if they're not movable. Yeah, well, the 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 sort of the the break in what would be a typical response was we we replaced a tent, and um, when we were deploying our our clinics, the uh, the FEMA representative who was there to observe the installation of the units. Uh, told me a story about how the tent was like uh, it was inside it was over 100 degrees and they were treating a baby with a fever and it was just devastating to watch and so by deploying what would be an equivalency of care platform um, we sort of created an environment where um, the people could receive the same quality care you would expect from your local doc local doctor's office and it's the, these, these clinics, it's the first time um, that I've ever known of where uh, FEMA invested disaster response dollars and gave money to the Department of Salud um, to buy these clinics. And since they were deployed to respond to the disaster, they've been able to pivot. They passed accreditation and are now part of the medical public health infrastructure. So that's, that's a game changer when you consider for years and years and years, we, we throw in sticks with canvas um, until they rot away and there's nothing to show after the disaster response dollars. And that's one of my passions, which is, which is transforming the way we look at responding disasters so that we send assets that can pivot into resiliency and not just be lost after the response. Well, what kind of things are sent into disasters right now and what happens to them? What happens to the so, assets, what do you mean? Well, it, we... Uh, we designed an Ebola response camp back in 2014 um, that was supposed to go in and respond uh, and create a, uh, uh, a clinical environment that had both observation and recovery bays and isolation. And they, at the last minute, that project didn't go through, but the assets that they took over there were all burned when they were done because they, they, they didn't have the ability to disinfect canvas. And there was real no really no value to them, whereas what, what we want to develop actually creates medical public health infrastructure. So when you look at a place like Africa where there is no medical public health infrastructure to start with, it's one of the reasons these things flare up so fast, whether it's tuberculosis mm -hmm. or Ebola or anything else. So our assets could actually deploy and stay on site providing medical public health and be the first already on the in the field response when the next thing flares up and that's that's something that we as a company are really focused on right now and pushing which is our, our assets don't, you don't have to wait till the disasters hit you can actually deploy our assets because they have a day job interesting so what's an example of that would what would be deployed for a disaster let's say a hurricane or something and then how would that morph into just the normal fabric of medical care in that area so the, the clinics on wheels that we deploy um, with telemedicine have the ability to go out into rural areas and provide examinations like you would go into your regular doctor's office and get an examination or a diagnosis. And because these are uh, carry their own communications platform, their own power, their own water, you're able to pull up on the curb and provide um, quality of care in a way that's literally... Medicare reimbursable. So, so there's a financial feasibility that could be done that shows the cost effectiveness of actually deploying healthcare 
infrastructure into these rural communities. And why that's such a big deal right now is that our rural communities have been devastated by regional hospital closures. And the fact that we have these um, areas of the country that are basically void of any viable healthcare infrastructure, and people are having to go 100 to 150 miles just to find a specialist that could, could look at them. With our, with our clinics on wheels, we have the ability to drive mobile medical capability directly into these neighborhoods, provide curbside medical care, and the specialists that need to do the diagnosis or be referred or consult can do so directly via the telemedicine capability. So they're able to consult with a specialist in a, in a quality of care environment, and the facility is getting reimbursed as, a, as an extension of the, um, of the medical institute that they're a part of. So they actually have a break-even analysis financially. So mobile medicine is not just a humanitarian response uh, foundation conversation anymore, like a nonprofit foundation from a hospital. It actually has a, a revenue generating capability to expand the centralized healthcare infrastructure's reach into these rural communities that are so underserved. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Huh. What's uh, are there different levels of mobile units that you're creating, like standard levels, or uh, you know, like how do you know how to kit them out or equip them? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. That that there's there's a custom piece of it that, thanks to the fact that we're a design build company, we're able to meet custom needs, whether it's an ENT group or an I group or um, just general practice, um, whether we're going to deploy x-ray diagnostic uh, mobile units. So there's definitely a specialty um, aspect to what a clinics on wheels could be deployed providing. Um, and then there's the scope of why you're delivering. What are you responding to? Like in the case of the breakdown in the rural health infrastructure, Clinics on Wheels is a pretty simple solution. It it's truly deployable. We're not talking about an 18 wheeler with a with a requirement for a licensed um, trucker to pull it in and then set it up. And we're talking about anyone with a pickup truck can pull our clinics on wheels. And we design that way them that way on purpose because in a disaster, logistics becomes a problem. Everyone know somebody with a pickup truck, right? So logistically, if you can pull it with a pickup truck, you just removed a lot of headaches. So clinics on wheels are good for that. But if you're responding to a huge disaster, like a Katrina level disaster, um, a hurricane like that, it was so devastating and left so many areas utterly void of even being able to set up response infrastructure. We've designed rapidly deployable structures that turn into hospital infrastructure so that so that you can start immediately providing medical care in an equivalency of care environment. Um, and when I say immediately, I'm not talking um, a few minutes to set up. I am talking about hours to deploy these assets, sometimes days. But when you are talking about deploying an operating room with, with positive air and sterilization with negative air, all in a functional floor plan that is familiar to medical staff, um, a few days is not a bad is not a bad setup time. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> Again, do you have particular models of these? I'm picturing, I guess, like a big square, like a, like a shipping container, but maybe smaller. So again, a, a pickup truck can yeah. move it. But um, so, I would guess, again, there's several models. There's one maybe operating room, one is uh, you know general care center, et cetera. What, what do you have? So the magic of World Housing Solution is our, our rapidly deployable panel. It is a panel that allows us to put a building together 
block by block, so to speak, the Legos version of, of a modular building. And this building is a space. And then with my background, and I spent about 20 years developing ambulatory surgery centers. So I have a background in understanding functional, functional floor plans and how to set up medically compliant space. So, so I just use the, the, the buildings of World Housing Solution and how we rapidly deploy buildings and then design the buildings that we deploy to be compliant with uh, a medical delivery platform. So whether it's two ORs and, um, and a ward with 25 beds, or it's something the Air Force recently asked for, which is a solution to their EMEDS um, deployments. EMEDS is a, is, a, is a way that the Air Force addresses responding medical capability, and they look for um, a, a facility that has 10 beds in an OR, and we can deploy that on a what's called a 463 Lima pallet that goes in a C-130. So we can literally deploy an OR with sterile processing and 10 beds that goes inside of an airplane. And, and that, that platform um, can expand up to 25 beds, and it can expand up to a 100-bed hospital with four ORs and and, uh, and 100 beds with ICU, pre-op, post-op, everything you need to be a fully operating hospital. And that's all deployable in a C-130 aircraft. So, so we have a lot of different scopes and sizes, but to be more specific on other things, we have isolation units that can be deployed in the case of a pandemic. We have simple wards. We have um, basically any kind of floor plan you can imagine, whether it's an x-ray room or, uh, or observation beds. Um, if it can be put in a brick and mortar building, uh, we can put it in our rapidly deployable building. So there's no, it's just a little bit of a imagination of how we would manage the space and set up the HVAC, uh, which um, luckily I, I spent a lot of time designing silly things like plastic surgery centers and buildings that were built in 1880 and turning uh, what used to be a coat closet into sterile processing, right? You, figuring that out, compared to figuring that out, designing a, an isolation room out of our rapidly deployable panels is simple. Well, uh, do you ever have problems with, um, you know, when you deploy this stuff that, I mean, it's probably what only happened in the U.S. that they would complain about zoning or, you know, land use or any of that stuff. But do you, do you ever run into those problems? And, I mean, it's far well, more not, important to help the local people. But Yeah, you're, you're 100% right. In fact, some of the, some of the hurdles that um, municipalities that are looking for clinical solutions for their um, medical public health outreach, there are simple zoning questions. And can you park a truck or, or a trailer in a, in a location? And, and those are some things they need to figure out. It's not a hurdle for us. It's a hurdle for who would use it. Now, in a disaster, all that stuff is not an issue, right? Because in a disaster, they're, right now they're using sticks and canvas. So in a disaster, I don't have to worry about meeting those kind of compliance standards because we're way at, we're, we're, head, shoulders, knees, and toes above deploying a tent. Um, that said, um, the goal that we have as a company is that while it can deploy in the same window of response as a tent, its longevity in theater to respond to the changing needs of a disaster, um, they go on and on and on, even to, in some cases, pivot to medical public health infrastructure that's been licensed. Would the military be interested in this? you know, to station these uh, war zones? Yeah, the, the EMEDS is, is literally a solution that, that would be uh, expeditionary forces um, capable platform uh, to, provide, to provide, you know, first 
um, first response care to get people stabilized to move them to move them back to a safer environment. So that's sort of the foundation of EMEDS. But um, most of our most of World Housing Solutions um, clients right now, we are a, a vendor for the DoD. So a lot of our solutions and ruggedness of our platform comes from lessons that we've learned, and that was really the the foundation behind Clinics on Wheels. Was our our founder uh, Ron Van Zeev, uh, took a look at the opportunity and everything that 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 the team World Housing Solution had learned about how to deploy rugged, sustainable assets in the most austere environments went into Clinics on Wheels, and that's how we were able to deploy solar-powered, um, redundant-powered generated facilities that were ADA compliant, that that had an inside that you literally would not know you're not in your doctor's office with the life safety signage and fire safety to pass um, life safety surveys that had the policies and procedures to operate under a Medicare standard that allowed it to pass uh, its, its accreditation survey and do the pivot that allowed it to stay in theater even after the disaster was declared over. It still was relevant to medical public health care. Yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> what, 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 are, what were the big hurdles in doing this in your mind? How can it, it seems like, you know, it's a, a great solution, but it hasn't been done, you know, against my knowledge, which is limited. But again, what are the hurdles in doing this and making it work? So the, the, the first challenge would be understanding that um, delivering medical compliance is easy if you have unlimited funds. So, so we've had like tr tractor trailer solutions for surgical centers for a long, long time. Um, in 94, I worked on a project to develop policies and procedures for an ambulatory surgery center and a tractor trailer. So that has been around for a long time. And when, when I started looking at why we were still using tents to deploy in a disaster, it was really a, a, a matter of economics. $3 million for a surgery center and a tractor trailer truck is not feasible to ambulate one disaster victim at a time into and out of your surgical theater. So there's, there were bottleneck issues in the deployment of medically compliant assets. And there's also the how easy it is to deploy. We've all seen containers. You can turn a container into a house, into a mall, into a, into a I mean, anything. Uh, it's amazing what they can turn containers into. But what they can't do is make them lighter than 5,000 pounds empty. And when you start with an asset that's 5,000 pounds, how do you deploy that when your entire logistics infrastructure has broken down? So there's a big difference between being mobile and being deployable. And our assets can literally be hand carried or towed with a pickup truck. So they are truly deployable, even in the worst case scenarios, you can still get our assets into theater. So, so understanding the hurdles that disasters cause in the logistics chain is a, is a big deal. And understanding that there's a cost associated with care and trying to keep our price point so that our disaster response solution is actually affordable. And that goes back to how important it was. And I don't know of, of of anyone who's like dealing with this right now, but one of my key arguments for take a look at this is that it has a, a, a break-even analysis. A clinics on Wheels has a day job. During, when it's Clark Kent, it's out there doing um, curbside medical care with telemedicine. 
And then when a disaster hits, these assets can be deployed for the medical surge event and provide quality care in the theater of operations for the disaster. So you, you communities, municipalities, FEMA can build up these assets that have a day job, but when disaster strikes, we can actually have a medical surge asset that can be deployed. Because right now, when a disaster strikes, the hospitals that are already at 90% capacity have to empty out to make space for the, for the people who are injured in the disaster. And that's not a very effective medical surge response. What about powering these units? You mentioned solar and having redundancies. But I would think one of the biggest problems in being remote areas is there's no you know, electricity poles, I mean, there's no utilities. So how do you get power, water, et cetera, to these units? Yeah, it's a, it, it, it is the challenge. And um, this goes back to deploying assets for the DOD. We have some really awesome cutting-edge technology in solar. And um, we created this thing called the Elastic Grid. And what the Elastic Grid is, trademarked, um, it, is a, it is an infrastructure that allows us to daisy-chain together all of our response assets. So the solar panels from all of our clinics are feeding batteries that share power between all of our clinics. Our communications share communications. So we literally, in the theater of operations, set up a microgrid that is fully self-sustaining. And the beauty of that is, is that it can expand and contract without compromising the base or the facility can expand and contract without compromising power communication because every unit that gets added actually adds its own functional power, functional communication. So this elastic grid is, uh, is, I think it's a game changer in being able to deploy assets that are fully functioning when they hit the theater. And because we're running off of a, a double back system, we run off of generators and solar power. All of the power that's actually feeding the sensitive medical equipment comes through our battery pack. So it's a clean wave of power. Uh, I can destroy an ultrasound in a day with a generator kicking on and kicking off, kicking on and kicking off and getting that dirty power. Um, but in our clinics, we're actually taking care of the sensitive medical equipment and not compromising um, their ability to do what they're in the theater to do. Oh, interesting. I didn't even think about that, that yeah, a generator kicking on and off could destroy a, you know, a very expensive piece of medical equipment. <laughs> yep. And the, and the other thing is that our found, one of the foundation points of World Housing Solution is understanding the importance of insulation. Um, our insulative values of our rapidly deployable buildings and our clinics on wheels allow for us to maintain uh, HVAC capability even under solar power, which is not easy because air conditioning takes a lot of amperage, right? So we actually have infrastructures that um, and insulations that allow us to um, maximize our efficiency internally with with highly insulated platforms, so that so that we can function even in the hottest or coldest locations with uh, very limited power supply. So you're also involved in uh, disaster housing. It sounds like right. So these all these lessons and technologies would apply directly, I guess, to you know temporary housing for people or permanent housing. Yes. And, and, and that was really the, the genesis of where World Housing Solutions started was, was, was deploying safer homes that, are, that you can't cut into with a tent um, that, that provide a standard of living that is not a muddy floor tent. Um, and that's, that was the foundation. And it's still where, where we want to see this go. I will say that one of the challenges is convincing uh, people that 
sending a tent isn't just good enough because in a disaster, you send a tent and then everyone forgets about it. It stops being on the news. And the fact that those tents rotted four months ago is beside the point. The tents are gone. The people are living in horrible conditions, whereas our solutions are, are more expensive than a tent, but they don't deteriorate in four months. Yeah, it's amazing all the things that you have to balance and all the considerations that you're talking about. I can see it's like very well thought out. Very interesting. Um, any major trade-offs still out there that you haven't been able to overcome? Um, you know, like what's the next step? What's the next iteration or next step for all this stuff? So uh, w- one of the big ones is, is, the, is the awareness that rural areas are depleted of, um, of health care and getting that word out there to the rural communities that there is a solution. Um, so that, that would be the first thing. The, the other thing is, is doing the, the cost justification of what you're deploying more than over a four-month period. So, so World Housing Solution actually has a break-even. There's a break-even of where deploying our assets, whether they're clinics on wheels or rapidly deployable structures, are cheaper than tents but it's not in the first six months. In the first six months, the tent is cheaper. In the first six months, you're not gonna be able to buy a clinics on wheels or a rapidly deployable shelter and have it be less expensive than a tent. But when you start running that out over time and what it costs to power the unit, what it costs in the humanitarian environment, the equivalency of care, compromising medical delivery, um, suddenly there's literally a profit that gets realized that you've delivered an asset that has long-term sustainability and a quality of care and a quality of living that far outseeds what the savings you got from deploying a tent in the first four months gave you. When an area has a disaster or a problem, I would guess it receives a special designation that maybe aid is allocated, et cetera. And when that designation stops, you know, they're, I guess they're left high and dry. Like how long on average are designations like that uh, given and what does it do for a site and i don't know like what's the dynamic there so remember uh paradise california had the wildfires and well there's wildfires like every five seconds in california but i, I guess i remember more like <laughs> yeah, well, hurricane, hurricane katrina or you know other events yeah like that, uh, i'm just i'm just giving this as an example because i'm i'm currently in a conversation with a with a nonprofit that's helping homeless people and when you first hear homeless people, you think of a particular reason that they might be homeless, but it turned out that the homeless people this nonprofit was representing were peop- all the people that lost their homes due to the fires. And, and many people not only lost their homes, but it turns out their homes were, were on lands that had been somehow reacquired so that they couldn't build on them again. So when their house burnt down, they literally not only lost their home, they lost their ability to have a home, um, at least in that yeah. location. So, so. My, my point is, is that the area, this county where this happened, uh, what, what, I was, what, what the nonprofit shared with me is they actually have a, um, a five, I think it's a three or five year um, moratorium or, or leniency on mobile deployable buildings. So normally they have very strict guidelines of what you can and cannot build. And you're not allowed to build with raised foundations and all this other stuff. And that, that's been le- like removed. So you can put in our raised platform, rapidly deployable shelters in that area, and it can stay there for until that is released, which there's even talk of it being extended because they don't have an easy solution for how to deal with this. 
Our rapidly deployable shelters uh, have hurricane wind resistant standards. They, you live in it like a house. Um, you're not spending exorbitant amounts of money on power to, to heat or air condition it. And it's, when it's done in the area, it can literally be taken apart and moved. And, and so the, what you're talking about is absolutely right. There are, there are limits and limitations to what you're allowed to deploy during a disaster versus during resilience versus during, re during the recovery period or the rebuilding period. And our, our structures actually meet the standards to pivot through those, but they also, um, they don't compromise the standard of living while they're pivoting. So I don't know the answer because I'm sure every state has a little different hurdle to jump through, but there, there's a good example of how um, a community actually gave waivers to try and support the people who were struggling to reestablish their lives. So uh, what, what's the best way for people to get in touch? Like who would be ideal customers of yours to get in touch and ask questions and how can they do it? So uh, just go to clinicsonwheels.com and, uh, and reach out to us that way. Um, you, you certainly are always welcome to, call, to email me directly, Tony C at worldhousingsolution.com and, uh, and contact our, our headquarters uh, at the manufacturing plant, World Housing Solution. So we, we are, I, I often talk about how our phone doesn't ring enough, giving the struggles that people deal with today. So I'll have no problem taking a phone call. Well, Tony, thank you for coming. It's a super well thought out and necessary solution. And uh, I really appreciate you being here. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.